Welcome to the Manor. Welcome back to the Twin Terrors Macabre Manor. Read Metal and Mayhem. I'm James. I'm Jody. In the year of... I was going to say of our Lord, but <laughs> never mind. <laughs> In the year of our Lord, Gary Gygax. <laughs> oh, I guess it is technically the, the, the Lord from time being considered from... Yeah, whatever. <laughs> ah, uh, yeah, the, we've been doing a bunch of D&D stuff, and finally, we're recording this early January, so don't know when it's coming out, but uh, it is officially 2024, so it now marks the 50th anniversary of Dungeons & Dragons, so we're going to do, for change, what we've said we're going to do. <laughs> Unlike the blues episodes that I've had ready to go for like three or four years, and we still have because I neither of us have been like just gung ho. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. D and D. Woo. On this, <laughs> oh, on this, I'm going to use this term specifically August occasion because we could count the common era from Augustus Caesar. <laughs> I would. <laughs> what are What are you drinking? Um, well, because I was reminded, <laughs> whoever did that is a fine, upstanding gentleman <laughs> or or a nag. <laughs> I didn't nag. I didn't tell you you need to do it. I simply said, oh, I'm looking forward to having this type of beer later tonight. And you're like, oh, yeah, thanks for the reminder. And I'm like, that was an accident. I certainly didn't <clears throat> mean to. <clears throat> yeah, yes, you did. <laughs> Um, I, I am having a uh, Dragon's Milk Bourbon Barrel Aged Stout. Mm, Dragon's Milk. I am too. I'm, I'm having the oatmeal cookie one because I looked in the fridge and, everything, and I didn't have any normal ones or any of the Crimson Keep. It would have worked well, but yeah. Dragon's Milk Oatmeal Cookie Reserved. They aged in bourbon barrels, but I think they all are. Right? Um... Yeah, I think that's kind of their thing. Yeah. That's their shtick. <laughs> that you could beat a dragon with. <laughs> I, um, sure. <laughs> Are you part dragon? Uh, you've seen uh, the three furrows I leave on the beach. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you know, because something drags. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, you know what pints at the prancing pony and uh, dragons have in common? Go ahead. <laughs> they both come in pints. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I knew it. I just didn't want to say it. <laughs> oh yeah, okay. I should I should stop, but I do. So, uh, Jody in our uh, texting with with friends through a, a thing sent this. Uh, meme thing, and um, do you, do you want to read it? Um, no, no, no. Go ahead, go ahead. All right. So it's Captain America in the elevator. You know, we do the fighting thing, and it's the meme that people use. And Captain America goes, "Britain has announced the creation of a government agency to regulate little Star Wars figurines that folks have been using, have been setting on their window ledges." And the guy goes, "That's odd. What are they calling it?" And Cap goes, "The Ministry of Still Ewoks." <laughs> it's just, you know, it's a, instead of silly walks, it's silly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a hilarious Monty Python thing. 
Oh, hey, reference an old episode. Drink. Woo, drink. And Captain America. We talked about him, too. Yeah, drink. So I'm, you sent it to me as I'm sitting at the, the pub earlier. And it was perfect because a couple guys were talking about current legislation going on in the state house or state laws. Okay, yeah. And I'm like, man, I'm so out of it. And, and like literally within two minutes of you sitting, they started talking about it. And I'm saying, I'm so out of it. The only thing I know about is this new British thing. And I've got the straight face. I'm saying it all straight. Is this new British thing where they're trying to regulate the size of Star Wars figurines that they put up in a, I point out the window, I put up in your windows. And one of them didn't even hear the whole joke because he's like, what? What? And he's like getting all uptight. <laughs> but uh, but Tim, uh, regular who I talk to all the time, and Devin, the bartender, she was there. They both actually heard it. And Devin laughed, and Tim offered her $10 to smash me with a pint glass. <laughs> <laughs> they, they both thought I was being, they all thought I was being serious. And <laughs> not sure why I need this. Brilliant. <laughs> uh, perfect timing when you sent it. Nice. Anyway, for somebody who said, let's try to keep this episode short. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. So I told Jody the order I have things in. Probably doesn't remember because that literally was like three weeks ago. Um, you told me? <laughs> I, I did. I briefly told you my, my section headers. Okay. But again, that was three or four weeks ago, so I wouldn't blame you if you forgot. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. So I've got first things and then some. So so I don't know how long this episode will go, but I've got some first things just to kind of talk about. And then we're going to do brief history, gaming, war gaming and gaming. Yeah. Uh, but it's going to start with first things. And that is maybe we should start with what it is, because even though we've done episodes, maybe not everybody knows what Dungeons and Dragons is. Right, yeah. It's a, simply a role-playing game. Tabletop role-playing, if you want to be specific, where you take the persona of a fighter or a magic user or etc. You go on adventures where you delve into dungeons and battle fierce monsters such as goblins and bugbears, beholders and dragons, and you carve out your empires, you get more experience. And, and for anybody who has played an open-world video game, well, this was open-world before that was even a thing in video games. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a, you pointed out that this is a tabletop role playing game. Uh, there are a lot of computer role playing games that people are. That, that, that's one of the biggest uh, computer gaming uh, things. One, one of the biggest types of computer games, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, com computer or console. Yeah. And you can all thank D&D &D for it. Yeah, yeah, you really can. Yeah, you can you can do anything you want. If you see an ogre, you can draw your sword and attack it, or you can uh, flirt with it and see if it'll fall in love with you. Yeah, <laughs> I um a lot of D and D does this, but a lot of other games also do this. Um, in their introduction for people who've never played any type of role playing game, they they say it's like, uh, it's like when you were a little kid and you used to play make believe or uh, cops and robbers is a common one that they'll mention. Um, but what this does is it has a set of rules so that, you know, instead of you 
making a finger gun and pointing it at your friend and going, bang, bang, I shot you. And your friend going, ha ha, no, you didn't, you missed. Um, there are actually rules for resolving that. <laughs> yeah, so you know if you kicked your friend's ass or not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also, typically you don't, well, <laughs> typically the idea is to um, not fight with the people in your party. <laughs> Right. This the group of friends you sit around with. This is a cooperative game where you're at a party together and you go up against all these foul beings as a group to try to win. And the the dungeon master, the person in charge, is kind of like the video game. Yeah, they're they're mm -hmm. a referee, umpire yeah, yeah. kind of thing. Which we'll actually talk about that terminology sometime. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah. They're they're referee. Good. Yeah, very good. Good point. They're they're more than just that, but that's uh, for right now. That's the easiest way to describe it. Yeah. And uh, other than that, I had a little note that says just like anything as a beginner, you start with very few abilities. Then as you progress, you become stronger and go up against more powerful beings. And it's part acting, part improv, which I know there's overlap there, but whatever. Uh, part math and totally fantastically fun. Yeah. And you, know, you can think of it as acting out influences, the things that, that were influences on the game, like Robert E. Howard with Conan or Edgar Rice Burroughs or H.P. Lovecraft or Michael Moorcock. And they're all purple swords like Lewis Carroll's Jabberwocky. And, mm -hmm. and keep in mind, you know, Jody mentioned video games. This was a big influence on those because this started 50 years ago when there was no internet, were no video games. You might have had two to four channels on a television set. Yeah, and we'll we'll talk about where it started, like specifically soon. But it started in the Midwest, where it's freaking cold and dark a large portion of the year. <laughs> <laughs> Especially the section of the Midwest where it actually started. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> and uh, if you're ready for a drink, I've got some culture context. Okay. Yeah. So, so of course, I have my 50, bottle in hand. I I poured mine into a storybook brewing pint glass. Nice. Yeah. Went to colorado with uh, jackie a few years ago and i didn't really you know she doesn't drink so i don't you know we we do a couple pubs and i do our horses and otherwise we just do nature stuff but yeah. I, I did make sure to go out of the way to storybook brewing because it, it's got a dragon on it and it was sounded cool and it was almost like a dive brewery but it was really cool when i went in there and had a, a quick pint and bought my glass to take home nice uh really really cool place well anyway context so we're talking about 19, well, D&D's 50th is 1974. We're doing some run-up to that with pre-74 things. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, there's, there's a lot of run-up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the Atari 2600, I'd mentioned that video games weren't a thing yet, right. which is true because the home system, Atari 2600, didn't come out for another three years in 1977. Yeah. And nor did Rankin and Bass's the Hobbit, although Tolkien's popularity in the U.S. climbed significantly in 1965 when Ballantyne printed a revised paperback edition, so that was an influence on D&D, and I don't know where it comes in, but I've got some notes on Gygax's thoughts on Tolkien. Okay. But that, that That's not right away. No, yeah, that can, that, that should be a little later. <laughs> uh, I've, I've I don't always do this. I think I did a much better job when we started this podcast and after a while I didn't give a shit. 
but I actually have a list of references because I, I'm excited. I'm excited about doing this one because I listened to so many um, interviews and I read a shit ton of books and and uh, so I, so I want to give all the references of the things I've read and listened to. Okay, here we go. So, of course, I I read the original box set and the five in quotes because there there's a thing there coming up. Supplements as well as chainmail that we'll talk about soon. Yeah. Uh, read Game Wizards, The Epic Battle for Dungeons and Dragons by John Peterson. Uh, Empire of Imagination, Gary Gagax and the Birth of Dungeons and Dragons by Michael Whitwater. Uh, Slaying the Dragon, A Secret History of Dungeons and Dragons by Ben Riggs. Riggs! Riggs! Sorry. <laughs> uh, Dungeons and Dragons, Art and Arcana, A Visual History by Michael Whitwater, Kyle Newman, and John Peterson. Which... Okay. You two of those names should sound familiar because they were above and others, which is kind of how I found it. I bought that and I saw their names. I started looking stuff up. I'm like, holy shit, there's a ton of books out there about the history of DD. Why haven't I read these? <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, also listened to the podcast When We Were Wizards, which was supposed to be 10 episodes and they've only done three and it's been quite a while. I don't know what's going on there. Mm -hmm. but it's okay. Uh, Designers and Dragons by Shannon uh, Applecline. Of Dice and Men by David and Walt. I watched The Eye of the Beholder, which was a documentary, like about an hour long documentary on the art of D D. Okay. And uh, what, was that on a streaming service or yeah, I think I watched it on um it's on Tubi or Freebie, which I watched through Amazon Prime because they do all those because you just have to watch a few commercials here and there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've uh, we've, we've watched freebie so um otherwise a uh, shit ton of websites from all sorts of fans and and the greyhawk wiki and the DD wiki and the wizards of the coast wiki and <laughs> yeah oh i would like to apologize to wizards of the coast okay because when and i don't know when we'll get here because this is mostly about the birth of D D, and we're only going up to a certain point wizards buys out tsr way after what we're going to get into now that may be three years before we get there yeah um, but i'll forget and i just want to apologize because when of course wizards of the coast bought out tsr for dungeons and dragons i know i and many others were all bitchy and pissing like you fucking wizards of the coast yeah fucking magic gathering bullshit i like the tsr and like well i was 25 when it happened so i wasn't even an old man <laughs> yeah something like that yeah uh, but uh, after reading all these books, I have to say thank you, Wizards, for not letting it go to shit like it was going to do. Yeah, I... Uh, um, oh, no, I, I just finished editing. Um, I, this episode should be out by now. <laughs> by the time this episode, by the time the episode we're recording is out. Uh, the, our uh, Best of 2023, and you had one of the books that you mentioned as a reference... Uh, you said you had read in 2023. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we were talking about the artwork. I, I may have actually cut it out of the episode, but uh, we were talking about the artwork um, and how they've usually had really good artists, but there was a run there near the end of second edition around the time Wizards bought TSR where the artwork just was horrible. And I, yeah, I don't know what direction the company was planning on going with the game, but yeah, I, I do agree. I think Wizards 
uh, buying TSR probably saved the game. Yeah, whenever we get there, they were having so many layoffs and the art department was hacked to the bone and yeah. Yeah. That that explains the horrible artwork. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's see, what are my other things here? Oh, many of the books I read do use interviews and quotes from people who knew what was going on or even worked at the company. And of course, they have a bias. Uh, so when I put all my notes together, I, I tried to just draw a picture. I tried to take the majority view uh but you know i try to try to keep it as low-key as i can on issues like that yeah and i have a note here that says i don't plan on going into biographies in a huge way like for specific people other than who they are with the company not talking much about their past but i have a note that says but joey can if he wants <laughs> um i might we'll, we'll see, we'll see. What you have. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, nothing right now. <laughs> but cool. yeah. Well, like, you know, as we say, we're trying to do this in certain ways, and we all know that doesn't always work. And we may get to a point and be like, you know what? Let's stop here and go on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So I've got another little piece that's personal. Okay. Because last year, and, and one this year, that's, I think, going to come out as we record this, it's going to come out soon. Yeah, uh, we we've been talking about D and D and our personal favorite modules and our character and our history. Yeah, but as I'm reading all these books, it's starting to become clear as to my timeline. Okay. Uh, so I said I started in either 1979 or 1980, probably mm -hmm. nine to one odds of it being 1980, because when we get there. But this is personal. We'll get there, not in this arc, but the next one. Uh, Random House, there's a deal that was made in 79, but the books came out in 80, which instead of gaming stores, they went out to actual bookstores. Yeah. So that's where I would have found the core books I'd mentioned at Readmore Bookstore on Wabash Avenue in Terre Haute, Indiana, when Wabash Avenue was still Terre Haute's Commerce and Cultural Center. Okay. Which I, I did play by myself for a bit, would take books to Sacred Heart, where I did get others interested, but didn't game with them until the 83 release of the Metsa Red Box because I talked all of them into getting it. Yeah. Although, you know, didn't actually meet up until the spring of 84 for our first adventure, which came out in the Dungeon Master's Guide in the Red Box, which just recently ran Jody and Rebecca through. Yeah. Are <laughs> we playing the Clint, uh, the basement of the old Clinton Public Library? And other than that, do want to mention I love brick and mortar bookstores. Uh, I, I still do. But the current ones are kind of pristine and clean, which which are great. It's wonderful. But I remember Walden Books at the Honey Creek Mall in Terre Haute. Mm -hmm. The first one, not when they moved towards the entrance where they were nice and big and bright. There was one further back along the way over by, I think, the Sears had this archway and stuff. And it it, it was nice. It was clean. But it was more of your traditional bookstore that you think of of like 1970s London or something where yeah a, yeah I think I remember that yeah a little dingier a little darker and they had this little section in the back off to the side where they just had some modules and and a few things and man it was like going into uh, I felt like Gandalf going into the the basements at Minas Tirith to study up on the ring yeah <laughs> and and it was cool when they moved and they became the bigger Walden books and 
they had this huge gaming section, but it was so brightly lit. It, it, I loved it, but it lost something. Yeah. <sighs> but I'm going to take a drink and um, get ready to talk about a brief history of gaming, which is mostly wargaming here. Uh, is there anything you'd like to, to mention while I take a drink and quite honestly blow my nose? Um, no, not, I mean, I'm, I'm ready to start with the war game stuff. If you are, but apparently right. I don't keep talking is <laughs> you need to take a drink and blow your nose. I, I muted myself while I did the one and I'm going to take a drink now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I'm good. Uh, so this is the part where Jody and I will step on each other. I bet. <laughs> probably, probably. Uh, I'm going to start in 1913. Oh, Okay. <laughs> are, are you starting earlier or later? Well, I, I was going to start with describing what a war game is. Oh, yeah. Go for it. Okay. So it's, it's uh, and I'm going to try and do this without reading verbatim from the Wikipedia article. Um, it's a game, a strategy game. You'll have uh, two or more people. Um, each one of them will have an army. Um and they're simulating uh, some sort of a battle or, or something like that. Um, there are two types. Professional, which is usually done by militaries, um, or recreational, which is more of what we're going to focus on. Hmm, yeah, okay. Yeah, I didn't even think about the professionals. You know, yeah. now I'm picturing Napoleon with this little scooter thing moving armies around on a big board <laughs> um in in a way yes <laughs> <laughs> um I, so uh, according to this uh one of the definitions is uh it, it simulates an armed conflict be it a battle a campaign or an entire war um it's adversarial there must be two opposing sides whose players react intelligently to each other's decisions and it does not involve the use of actual troops and armaments. When you listen to the news and you hear, well, North Korea has said they're going to do blah, 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 because the United States and South Korea are performing war games near the demilitarized zone. Those are field exercises. Those are not war games. Right. Yeah. So, um, as I said, professional war game, uh, it's used by military organizations to train officers in tactical and strategic decision-making, stuff like that. Recreational war games go all the way back to 1780 in Prussia. Um, first one was invented by a guy named Johann Christian Ludwig Helwig. I'm, I'm waiting for you to jump in on the Helwig thing. Oh, damn it. <laughs> oh, okay, here we go. Here we go. Oh, do you feel the... Oh, that's more macho, man. Damn it. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. I wasn't ready. I even watched the video of Warrior and Hogan earlier because it's one of those things like when you promise you're not going to get drunk and this is you and the boys two hours later because it's the two of them being interviewed by Mean Gene going, Mean Gene, do you get one? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, so you're talking about the ultimate game <laughs> yes the ultimate game yeah um so uh helvig was a college professor in uh, brunswick in germany and brunswick. he wanted to huh brunswick 
Yeah, Brunswick. I don't know. <laughs> or um, Braunschweig. <laughs> Ooh, yes. I want some Braunschweiger now. Yeah. Um, well, he he was a college professor, and a lot of his students were young men of the nobility who were going to be going to serve in the military. So he wanted to uh, be able to teach them about warfare, but make it fun at the same time. So it's at, so his version was both intended to be recreational and professional. Um, but he was the first one who said, okay, we're going to use a grid map based off of chess, but instead of it being, you know, alternating squares of black and white, it's represents the terrain. So it's got rivers, it's got roads, it's got, you know, other obstacles, uh, houses, whatever. And, uh pieces to represent the units um in 1806 uh well Hel helwig's game was kind of popular he also wanted to make money off of it um so it was kind of popular as a recreational thing um but a lot of militaries looked at it and went eh, no um Works. yeah uh, in 1806, an Austrian guy named Johann Ferdinand Opis, Opis, uh, he he developed a, a, a war game, um, again, that was supposed to be you know both for civilians and military. Um, used a similar uh, grid-based board, uh, but he was the one who introduced dice to simulate the unpredictability. Mm, probabilities uh -huh. in 1824 uh, another prussian or a prussian army officer uh george heinrich rudolf johann von reiswitz or reiswitz uh, i'm probably butchering that either way uh, <laughs> i would have gone with reiswitz but yeah, yeah I, we know what i'm like with it that shit yeah so he he develops a, a new game, um, but instead of using a grid, he used topographical maps. Um, the but that made the scale smaller than anything on it before that. Um, he's also the one. Uh, let's see. Um, the units could suffer partial losses before being defeated, which were tracked on a separate sheet of paper. Reiswitz's war game was the first to use unit hit points. Hit points? I've heard of that term. Yeah, we'll talk more about that later. Um, his game was called Kriegspiel, or Kriegspiel, um, which literally translates from German to English as war game. Blitzkrieg, Blitzkrieg, Blitzkrieg. <laughs> um, in 1881, uh, Scottish writer Robert Louis Stevenson became the first documented person to use toy soldiers in a war game. Um, although he never published rules. Ah, damn it. <laughs> yeah, but he was he was the first one to use miniatures. Um, although they, they did say his uh, his playing field was just a chalk map drawn on the floor. 
Um, so you were you were going to start with 1913, and that's where my that was my next note was 1913. So do you want to you want to go ahead and do this one? Uh, I'll start. We'll just kind of go in there together. Besides the fact that I'm going to now sing a little bit. Okay. 1913. We took a little trip. <laughs> okay. So when I read uh, all of the the references I read were talking about various war gaming things. And keep in mind, I actually didn't get on Wikipedia. A lot of that was new. That was great. I appreciate that because I didn't have any of that. Yeah, cool. Uh, because every book, and most of these did talk about some of this. Uh, mm -hmm. They they actually talked about the original was the 1913 game rules created by H.G. Wells. Uh, but as you're starting to talk, I'm like, well, shit. <laughs> and I looked it yeah. up. And, and it looks like he was the first one to be considered miniature wargaming. Yeah. On the wiki page that, that I was kind of following along with you on. So that must be because D&D was created by people who were into miniature wargaming. So obviously right. that's where they were coming from. Right. Yeah. So he um, he he codified the rules for, or he 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 codified rules for using miniatures. Um, Little Wars was the name of the book. Yeah. Uh, so the notes I have consider the inventor of modern wargaming. Evidently not, but maybe miniature wargaming. <laughs> yeah. And and he used the the he set this out because his rules would use toy soldiers that were likely around any British household of middle class or higher at the time. Uh huh. And was frowned upon at the time because it might cause kids playing it to have war thoughts, foreshadowing the satanic panic that we'll talk about eventually between D and D and video games and heavy metal and <laughs> yeah yeah uh, uh actually that's all really all i had except to also mention little wars was a name used by tsr for a small periodical that they published uh that only lasted 13 issues okay um what i what i thought was neat about this is he didn't uh his rules didn't use dice um so, but what they did do, and I know many of our listeners closer in age to us have probably done this. Um, little Green Army Men. <laughs> so rubber bands or BB guns or pellet guns. <laughs> and that's that's how you knock them over, you know? Um, so the, the ones that H.G. Wells was using in, in what he wrote um the like the cannons would fire little wooden cylinders that would literally knock over the 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 toy soldiers so that way you could keep using them unlike when we did use too many pumps on the pelagun or or maybe a couple firecrackers or an m80 <clears throat> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um he was also the first one to use uh scale models for the buildings and the trees and, and other terrain features. Yeah. Um, uh, my I, section's titled Brief History of Wargaming, so you're going to have way more than me. <laughs> well, I've got, I got like five more things and they're real small. So I don't know. Did, did you have any others? Yeah, yeah I've got a few. I've, I've got a little half a page with some little blurbs. So probably about the same as you. So okay. You go ahead and I'll, I'll jump in when I get to the same year. Okay. Um, well, do you, do you have anything before 1954? 
No, my next one's 1957. Okay. Um, in 1954, uh, an American, uh, Charles S. Roberts, uh, published the what is considered the first successful commercial board war game where the the map is on a board like um like a monopoly game board um and in 19 uh did i say the year 1954 uh tactics was was the name of the game um and now it didn't uh from what i'm looking at here in the picture it doesn't look like uh he used miniatures but it would have been like uh cardboard uh, i guess what they call chits and that would have represented the units on the field me in 55 uh another american jack scrubby uh, is that how it's pronounced i i don't know scrubby scrooby i was saying scrooby because every time i read i'm like scrooby scrooby do <laughs> and, and not to be a dick that's why that's how i pronounced it in my head Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I. Um, yeah, me neither. Yeah. My he, next notes on him though too, but it's fifty-seven. So you go ahead. Okay. Well, um, I I think I know what you're going to say there. Um, in fifty-five, he started making um, inexpensive miniatures out of uh, what they call type metal, which I didn't really look up specifically what type metal is. Um. And he also started to network different players across the country and the UK because uh, wargaming communities were small. You, there weren't a lot of people doing it. So, you know, it's it was hard for people to get in touch with other people because they didn't know who else was out there. Um, I do want to take a little... I was... Eh. So... Uh, I guess a little aside here, miniatures, uh, miniature wargaming um, is where the units are, are represented by miniature physical models, uh, where they, they look like what the, the soldier or whatever um, is supposed to look like. Uh, for a long time, they were made out of tin or lead. And I know... Yeah, historically, these models were commonly made out of tin or lead, which is where we would get, when when we were first getting into this, everybody called their miniatures leads. And that I think that's where that comes from. Um, yeah, yeah. Now they're, obviously, they're made out of plastic. Uh, they're cheaper to mass produce. In 1956, Tony Bath published the first rule set for a miniature war game to be set in the medieval period. Uh, that will, that might come up a little bit later. <laughs> I don't know if you've got anything on Tony Bath. Nope, do not. Uh, this was a major inspiration for Gary Gygax's Chainmail in 1971. Uh, but cool. going back to Scrubby or Scrooby or uh, um, apologize for not knowing how to pronounce that. Yeah, uh, you had something from 1957 on him. I uh, just that he made miniatures, and in '57 he started to publish Wargame Digest. Yeah, that was the first wargaming magazine. Yeah, I think that's all I had for right now. Um, all right, I just have a, yeah. a few more. Then '62, uh, 
Tom Featherstone, who's a famous wargamer, wrote war games and many other books, but his book on how to do wargaming. Mm-hmm. Artisan, who we haven't actually mentioned yet, but he and Gary are the ones who put D&D's rules together. Yeah. His Blackmore setting that we'll talk about soon, but is inspired, inspired by the game Bronstein from 1967 by David Wesley, okay. which used players that were in a town taken over by Prussians. Okay. Other than that, a lot of companies would give away rules for free and encourage people to make their own rules just so they could sell the miniatures that were the money makers, especially the bigger pieces. Like, you know, you can do naval wargaming too, and some of the bigger ships would yeah, yeah. be a little pricier. And the original gaming convention, because it was put together for wargaming people, not for role-playing people, mm-hmm. that would become Gen Con, was held in New York, 1967. And while considered a success, it actually lost money, which is why the next year ended up being two conventions set up in the summer, the second of which was for the Midwest and would become known as Gen Con. And we'll get to that later, but want to mention 67 was the first convention for really anything like this, but it was for Wargaming. Okay, cool. And my question for you, my good sir, is... Uh-huh. Is this a good place for a break? And then we can uh, start another episode. Yeah. Good. Multiple reasons. One, we told our listeners we keep them short, and I'm tired of David making fun of me at the pub. <laughs> uh, two, uh, I, I need to go get another beer. Okay. Sounds good to me. All right. This uh, 50th anniversary of D&D is going to take about three or four episodes before we get to D&D. <laughs> <laughs> but hang in there. We'll get there. Yeah, eventually. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so yep, write us, review us, rate us. Till then, I am Dragon's Milk Oatmeal, Jane. <laughs> I'm a... Uh... Dragon's milk regular Jody. Um, <laughs> we'll milk dragons at you later. <laughs> Bye. The Macabre Manor is brought to you by the Twin Terrors. All rights reserved. Stay tuned for some fun outtakes. Three, I have to urinate. And uh, come buy our underwear off of eBay to give us some money, whatever. You know, it's all good. Yeah. Um, I forgot something. Reisvitz's war game, the the Kriegspiel, uh, was also the first one to use an umpire to officiate what was going on in the game. So it's an early version of a drag of a dungeon master. Cool. I didn't. I I just had the whole paragraph highlighted and I missed that. So anyway, yes, (laughs) right time.